Hi, everybody. I'm E.B. Smith. I'm an actor, director, all-around storyteller coming to you live from Athens, Ohio. And I am Adai Moon. I am a playwright, dramaturg, and cultural worker coming from Atlanta, GA. And you are listening to the Old Heads Podcast. A deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curtain. How are you, my friend? Oh, buddy. I'm cool. I'm exhausted. The apocalypse is happening. I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) General joy and chaos. What can I say? That's right. That's right. It is is a crazy time. The president of the United States has COVID-19. Oh, I'm not even going to talk about that. We're going to just transition past that. All I got (laughs) to say, the ancestors are doing their work. Ashe. But RBG is tireless. That's all I got to say, man. <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. Okay. So we have a fantastic show today. We have a wonderful guest who I've worked with before. We last worked together on a production of Fences in, what was that, 2019? So last last season at the Grand Theater in London, Ontario. Rachel Forbes, welcome to the show. Yay! Hello. Thank you for having me. Rachel is uh, one of a very rare breed. Black designers anywhere are hard to find. But when you do, they tend to be fabulous. And Rachel is. It's great to have you. Adai, you want to kick us off? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and, and again, to, to co-sign what E.B. said, I mean, designers in general are the coolest and smartest people in theater. So <laughs> it is a pleasure <laughs> to have a designer of color on the show. So excited. Rachel, so I, I, I was doing my little internet research and came across your LinkedIn page. And I was fascinated by... The fact that uh, you sort of got your foundation and your mentorship at Obsidian Theater, which is a black theater company in Canada. And this really goes back to something that I've been discovering recently, is that there are so few artists of color whose foundation exists in black or culturally specific institutions. I mean, that, that's my background as well. Could you talk a little bit about how that's shaped you and sort of the importance of that from your perspective? Uh, Absolutely. I'll say without Obsidian, I don't think I would be here right now. I think it would have been impossible for me to get a footing and to like make connections. You know, coming from Frierson University, like most theater schools, super white. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a good training, but a good technical training, let's right. call it that. And as an artist, I didn't have any footing and any sort of like connections. And working with Obsidian, the kind of support that you get from a Black institution is something that can't be replicated anywhere else. Amen. Like I had these two amazing mentors, you know, one that I worked with briefly and one that I worked with for a long time afterwards, Astrid Jensen, who, you know, she's a white woman who's an incredible designer. But the fact that our relationship started at Obsidian and through Obsidian was like the the relationship worked better, I think, somehow, because we had that footing. And then I had Obsidian as a support structure, you know, which I didn't I don't know that that exists in other theater companies at the time when I was working there and like working on other things, not even working on an obsidian show. I could just call up and say, Hey, can I stop by and talk to you? And you know, if people weren't in rehearsal, then it was always, yes. The fact that they would make, make time for, for all of us, like every black artist, just because knowing that we needed them, you know? Yeah. And there is a sense of family and support. I mean, I, I went to a, historically black university for undergrad, Clark Atlanta University, shout out, go Panthers. Uh, (laughs) As well as my first professional experience in the theater was with the black theater company, Jumanji Theater in Atlanta. I mean, both of those experiences completely shaped the artist that I am today. And I think people kind of forget 
how important having those culturally specific foundations are for, for Black artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll say, too, that, like, designing is a lonely craft. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do get to spend really good collaboration time with a lot of colleagues, but there's also, a, like, a gestation period that has to happen on your own. And you feel a little isolated because you're not part of these other little groups, as it were. Like, working with production staff, there's always this separation because they work for the company and you are the show, right. you know what I mean? And, and the same with like the cat, there's all, there's all these things. And so I find design can be a bit lonely. And so, you know, having a company like Obsidian to kind of support and, and like go to, it, I don't know, it's really incredible. Right. So speaking of craft, do you find that your approach to the work differs being a person of color, being a black woman from your white colleagues, the people that, that trained you up and that, that have sort of been your source of education through the years before you arrived at Obsidian? I think my my craft feels really specific to me as a person. And I'm not sure that I know where that fits in. I know that I have I have this like a, a complete resistance to formality, <laughs> which I feel like that's like a white thing, but I don't know if it actually is. It could just be like <laughs> that, that might be completely false. But my like my family, you know, we talk over each other. I think that like you know that like I so when I feel uncomfortable, which to me is like not being able to just be me when I have to put on this like formal something, right. I feel like that changes. But yeah, so my craft feels like it comes from maybe from my personality and from the way that I understand stories. I think mm-hmm. probably it comes a lot from like my mom's big reader, big time. I've read, you know, like I feel like I've read a lot more books than a lot of people I know. And I didn't realize that was something strange. And but that that's a lot about how I approach understanding stories is from like reading so much. So that's fantastic. I mean, I, I wonder this a lot. I mean, when we when we worked together on Fences and and we, we entered that room together, it was a predominantly black space within a predominantly white institution. And it, it felt, from the actor's perspective anyway, like we were sort of on this strange island and there was a lot of curiosity around what was happening in that space. And, and we felt quite at home, but I did feel this, this weird kind of inquisitiveness coming from the office and from the deck and from all these other places in the building where the white folks were kind of peering out from behind the curtains going, what's going what on? <laughs> are they eating calories in there what's going on (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly. i mean and and there was a lot of there was a lot of ritual in that space our director janet sears you know injected a lot of ritual into that space every day we would come in and we would and we would do something communal you know and we would teach each other skills that other folks didn't know i mean i remember one day ordina came in and taught us all how to braid hair which was oh that's beautiful absolutely awesome but I, I felt that even in our costume fittings, too, where it was easier in some ways to talk to you about what was going on in this world than I found it is to talk to white designers, for example. There was a layer that didn't exist in that initial developing communication phase. Yeah, that that's like, I feel like you've just summed up what I meant by my resistance to formality, where like, I've, I, I remember going into some fittings as an assistant going into fittings and finding this space where like everybody's kind of wooden. And I feel like, what are we doing here? Mm. Like, you know, why is this set in this space where we're all so uncomfortable? Like this actually needs to be the most comfortable space because we're about to dive in and talk about like your body, your character, your, you know, everything. And we're all going to be kind of staring at you. <laughs> so like as <laughs> staring at the actor, I'm like, this should really be a much more comfortable, like safer space than it 
often is. And for me, my design practice when it comes to costumes is very, like, I love the collaboration with the director. I like the collaboration with the cutters, but the collaboration with the actor is probably my favorite part. Mm-hmm. So I want to converse. I want to know, like, where where things are going, what you're bringing to this character and all of that. Like, I want to talk about that stuff. And I find the fitting is the best place to kind of, like, dig in to find my one-on-one time, even though there's, like, five other people in the room. <laughs> so, yeah, that... I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's it's exciting and interesting to me that we're starting to talk a lot more about the process and about spaces and about this idea of decolonized spaces, especially, and, and the impact that has when you're creating a piece of theater. As a designer, do you think you have a different approach to Black text than text written by European writers, even in, in your own process? Hmm, I Maybe. Maybe even more than approach is like my relationship to it is different. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like finding things inside that are like relatable in a different way. I guess that does shape how I approach the work. You know, it's like sometimes it feels like you can approach it from the inside as opposed to from the outside. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. I try to look at all of my work the same way with the same care, but I have, I always have a soft spot for like every, every like black work that I approach. I have this tenderness for it, I think. Mm, Right. Um, Mm. And is that because you you come across that work so infrequently as a theater maker or is that? You know what? I think that I must be the luckiest because I probably have the opposite experience of of that. I come across Hmm. it all the time. (laughs) I would say that the majority of my work has been black theater to the point where I almost feel typecast. But at the same time, I'm like, like, that's weird, right? Because... No one's ever going to see me. <laughs> so how am I getting typecast? I don't get it. <laughs> Literally never going to see my face. Um, I guess in the lobby, maybe. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I have this, like, I- I'm really fortunate that a lot of the work I get the chance to create is is Black plays. And I'm I'm glad of it, but... It's a, yeah, it's definitely this opposite experience. Like what you're talking about, Evie, earlier about going into white institutions with black plays. I feel like that's my that's my mo or something. I feel like I go around the country where people are doing either their their like their first big black production and they're excited that they can get a black designer on, or you know, or they haven't done one in yeah. many years or something. So I'm I don't know. I I feel like I I'm the first sometimes one of the early contacts when it comes to those companies. And like I feel I go in and like do this work to prep for all the cast coming in almost am i making sense here not yet. <laughs> this is this is a question this is a question i've got for you on that in that regard what what do you find are the stumbling blocks as you're entering these institutions who are going finally after all this time we're doing black work and we should probably have a black designer let's call rachel what do you find is that is the nature of that first contact as you enter these spaces that haven't engaged with this in this way before? I think there is a level of carefulness in some aspects and complete carelessness in others. It's mm. like, and I think it's just a little bit of ignorance. So I think there's there's tends to be an awareness like, okay, we're bringing in all these these black artists, but then also this like this not understanding what that means. Mm. The biggest thing I have to do is I always have to educate at least a little bit, and it's almost always on hair. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I get the I get the contract with the with the budget on it, and I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, like uh, this, is this isn't gonna, gonna cut it. Gonna... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, what <laughs> absolutely you, know, you, can't, you can't send your cast, you know, downstairs to your white barber, and you can't 
misunderstand what it is to cast a black woman in a period show where I'm like, we're going to have to deal with hair in a way that you're not understanding. Mm-hmm. So I tend to have to do that education. And I'm like, I'm generally, I'm pretty happy to do it because it means the actor doesn't have to suffer when they get there. But yeah, it's like, there's, there tends to be this, like, I can tell that they, they want to be really good, but there's certain things that a lot of companies are a little bit ignorant of. Mm-hmm. And the black hair thing is a big fucking deal, <laughs> both sure in is. theater and in film. Like to this day, you would think that people would have figured it out by now, but no, it actually really matters when it comes to the storytelling. It is so crucial if because I it's more than a, brother, it's more than a style, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I see another brother on stage with a bad wig, I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> it's just like, y'all, no, do your homework. <laughs> Hire some black designers, please. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, to that end, there aren't a lot of black designers out there. Nope. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> so, so what what are we what are we doing about that? You're you're teaching now, right? I am teaching. I'm teaching a first year course at Ryerson, which is great. I will just say too, though, there's a few, some younger than me, and some sort of around the same place in their career. Uh, not quite, but um that are coming up, like some designers, there's a couple in Quebec, in Montreal, which is amazing. And Mm -hmm. some students out in in, uh, Calgary that I was in touch with. But yeah, we're like this tiny little community now. But when I started, there were no other ones who were working. Instead, I'm costing like zero. So, and that's not even that long ago. I'm pretty young. The fact that there were zero other black designers is wild to me. And I will say I'm now on the board of directors at the Associated Designers of Canada. And congratulations, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Myself and Joanna Yu and a couple other designers started like a a BIPOC committee designer circle just to to hold some space for other designers of color. It's just like, yeah, it's lonely out there. You said something about teaching, though. Um, Yeah, I'm like, I'm really excited by the the first year class. You know, they're a fairly diverse group, more than when I was there anyways. I don't know what the what the bar is, but... (laughs) more than when I started at that school. So so you talk about, you know, entering higher education as a designer and getting a lot of craft, getting a lot of technical know-how. What are you trying to bring to that technical know-how to augment it culturally for people of color that are coming up in your program? I'm trying to engage them in a little bit more artistic response to things than just the technical skills, you know, teaching them how to like read and listen creatively as opposed to just from a technical perspective and I sort of have a a general rule for myself that like they don't need to be shown any uh anything from the European canon from me (laughs) because they're gonna get it in some of their other classes I can't stop that from happening they're gonna get (laughs) it (laughs) you're gonna get the white man you're gonna get (laughs) them yeah (laughs) I don't need to teach you anything ancient Greek or Shakespeare like we don't have to do that in my class is the is the view that I have that's fantastic that's actually wonderful. So what kind of source text are you using? And and so to add on to that, how are white students of yours reacting to that kind of curriculum? Yeah, I mean, we're only a few weeks in, so we haven't touched on a lot of a lot of like text and actually reading plays and starting pretty technically. We're going to read Fences actually, which is funny. This is a play that I'm so familiar with and I think it's so it's such a, a beautiful piece. So mm-hmm. we're going to dig into that a little later. It's really strange sort of being online. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so I'm like really acutely aware of their inability to access things from their different homes. And I'm so wanting to make it accessible. But it means to some degree, I keep having to go to sort of like Ryerson's online resources. 
So I've spent a lot of time digging through to find <laughs> things, things that we can read and look at that are not just white. <laughs> and, are they, and are they there? I mean, does the university have? You know what? There's, there's a few things. They have all these digital resources that are like beyond just Ryerson that we have access to, which is really oh, exciting. Oh, that's great. So there is some good stuff on there. Did you know that Spike Lee's production of Passover is on Amazon Prime? Yes, it is amazing. I didn't know that. I was so excited by it. I was like, everybody go watch this because I love that play. It's interesting that you mentioned Spike Lee because I was thinking about Ruth Carter. I mean, Ruth Carter, the, the costume designer, and how much her designs shaped all of Spike's early films. And mm -hmm. then you have her not being acknowledged until Black Panther comes out. And, I, and I'm like trying to explain to people, I'm like, y'all, Ruth Carter did all the Spike Lee's films. She did a different <laughs> world. Like she literally was the visual template for this idea of American Blackness. So it, it, it's fascinating to me that people don't even, and I and also think about so, someone like Kathy Perkins, who's a brilliant designer and a brilliant theater scholar, also a Black woman. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that people don't understand, especially the impact that Black female designers have had on shaping the stories that, are, that, that have been told over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think also like that speaks to the people don't understand what design is. I think they don't. they don't recognize it when they watch things, unless it's like really obvious and sci-fi or something, people don't understand how much design shapes a story. Mm -hmm. And it's so important because, like, imagine watching those things with your eyes closed. Sorry, listening to those things with your eyes closed, right. you know? Like, it's not the same story. And it, and it impacts the actor's experience profoundly. I mean, without, without having that physical touchstone, that world to play within, those clothes to move in, you lose the sense of where you are, right? You default to your own default, which is not, you know, August Wilson's Spaceberg in the 1950s, for example. You know, to, to, to understand what those clothes did, how they moved. You know, the, the questions, the questions are profound. And, and in terms of, in terms of the cultural resonances, where did they get those clothes, right? They weren't buying from the same tailors that white folks are buying from. So do those clothes fit the same way? I mean, even today, if I walk into H&M, ain't nothing going to fit me. At all. I'm, I'm a big black dude with an ass and shoulders. Right. Those clothes weren't made for me. Right. And there's something about walking around in those clothes that I can't seem to, un I can't seem to communicate to white designers all the time. Yeah. And I think it's cultural too. Like, you know, I think it, it would be hard for a white designer to understand, I mean, using Wilson as an example, that even though you're dealing with 1930s, 1950s, you know, Pittsburgh, working class to poor black communities, mm -hmm. those Negroes are going to be clean. They may mm -hmm. not have any money, <laughs> but they're going to look good. That's right. Because that yeah. aesthetic is so much a part of the culture. And you can only understand that if you understand the, cult the culture. And how hard it was to stay looking good. Right. Yes, work. It's work. That's one of the things that I, that's one of the things just going back to our history together that I really appreciated about Fences because those clothes really felt like something that we lived in. And I don't think that was by accident. Yeah, and and that's partly Janet Sears too. She has such a good. Um, our conversations clarified so much for me about how the, who those people were, who we wanted them to be in our production, and shaping our production for what we knew would be a, a really like white audience. I know that sounds strange, but like recognizing that lens mm. was uh, was key to some of our conversations too. Can you talk about that a little bit? How how did that manifest? Similar to the way that you're talking about how people took so much care around how they dressed, 
partly it's because, you know, one misstep, one wrongly placed hair is a reason for a white person to look down on you right. in, in mm-hmm. the 50s, right? Part of why you got to look so good is to prove your humanness, which mm-hmm. is like awful that that's a thing. But in a way, I felt like we almost had to do the same thing. Like we were advocating for these characters to prove their humanness to this audience. Maybe we didn't talk about that exactly, but that's a thought that I had sometimes mm-hmm. where it was like, we talked about the colors that we were going to put on stage and like, it can't be um, drab. Like we didn't want things to be muted. We wanted things to be vibrant. Mm-hmm. Just to, to not to play into like, we didn't want things to look too worn, you know, like even though they were worn, it's like, I don't know, we wanted everything to feel very much alive and relatable. And I don't know. This is something really interesting you just brought up because, you know, as as black folks have to be concerned with respectability as they move through the world, because that's that's how you avoid the negative effects of the white gaze. It strikes me that that black art, particularly within white institutions, has a similar challenge in and of itself. It has to it has to be fulsome in a way. You know, there's a there's a forgiveness, I guess, we can find in a lot of white art that we can't find in black art, particularly in terms of design, in terms of specificity, in terms of rigor. Um, that's very yeah. interesting. It's hard and it's sometimes it's really hard to take risks, which is like what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what we should be focusing on as artists is just being able to take a risk on trying something and it's like but if it fails, you know, they won't, they won't understand. And, and it's sad that Black artists in across the board, designers, I mean, people in every spectrum of the art, we do not have that freedom to fail. Like, we have to be fucking impeccable all the time. And it's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating. But also that, that rigor uh, also creates some really powerful work. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it kind of op- operates in, in ways that are positive, but also ways that are that are st- stressful and problematic as well. I mean, the fact that we we still have to kind of shape our art and our craft with, you know, the white gaze in mind, which thankfully, thankfully, a lot of Black artists now really starting to challenge those respectability politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but, but it makes me curious as to how quickly that's going to happen in, in, in the theater. It seems to be happening in TV real fast. <laughs> but theater... Mm. I don't know. Theater is so some of the that like that culture is so entrenched. Yeah, theater seems intractable in a way the TV doesn't, and you know it, it's not as it's it's not as free because the conventions are so powerful. When right. you walk into a building, you have to sit in a chair. You have to abide by certain customs that we've agreed upon our theater. But those customs in North America that we've agreed upon as theater were mm. created to tell stories that weren't ours. They were created to tell stories of the well-made play or vaudeville or these eurocentric conventions needed a vehicle and it feels like we're kind of growing up within that and and searching for some kind of acceptance within that how how do you find being sort of the only as you as you began your career and then and then growing into a mentor role what are you trying to impart upon students that you didn't get I talk to them a lot about like challenging the conventions around space a lot I did a whole long section of a lecture about audience relationships and like, you know, there's all the types of theaters that we've all inherited. They're all over to remember that as you start a design, potentially challenging the very nature of the space is part of your job Mm -hmm. Um, to consider like how we're telling a story. And I talk a lot about like why, like at, at every moment when you're making design choices, like 
remind yourself why this story is being told at this time and find relevance always, um, which I don't think I learned a lot about. So how important, how important then is space to you in disrupting that concept of space? Are you trying to take theater out of its sort of native white centric environment or are you, are you trying to keep it in that environment, but, but disrupt what the nature of that space is? I think both. I, I think there's like a, a, a grand expansion that needs to happen in all of our minds around like what, yeah, like what spaces are and how we should treat them. Uh, I think a lot of this comes from Astrid actually, who, like I mentioned my mentor before and uh, you know, she always would challenge that. She sometimes, you know, puts audience on the stage, or mm. sometimes we would. Yeah, we did a- I remember we did we did that in fences. <laughs> oh wait, 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 wait! So the audience was on stage. We had about thirty seats, I think, on stage. Somewhere in thirty seats on stage on a in a proscenium house. So right. so whoever was sitting in those seats was part of that picture box, which right. is really interesting. Oh, that's awesome. Um, it was it was kind of terrifying though because the 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 hitting station. For anybody that doesn't know fences, there's a baseball t- tied to a tree um, that that Troy and Corey uh, routinely go over and hit. Um, but every time they hit it, they were they were swinging a baseball bat and hitting a hardball towards the audience. It was it was attached by a tether. But every time it happened, man, the audience freaked out because you know if that thing let go, someone's getting a concussion. <laughs> but it it was. It it added it added something really visceral to that experience though, right? Because because you felt the you felt what was behind those baseball swings, right? Troy's mm-hmm. desperation and and loss of that loss of that identity, right? And Corey's aspiration to become his father. I mean, all of it was tied up in the way they were hitting that baseball. And but I you think, also get like, like like a sense of the stakes involved in their lives, though. Of course, yeah. I mean, these are like you know people living in a high stakes situation. <laughs> I mean, Ooh, yeah. So yeah, it's you know, the shit's scary. So, so how did how did that experience change your perception of that play? I thought, I mean, I think it was really great. It was great knowing that that some people would be close enough to see all the detail that we were putting in, like because mm-hmm. you know she designed the set and I did the costumes and like knowing that some people were close enough to see things meant that I'd put in that level of detail, even just for those 30 people right. who were close enough to really take it in. It really helped having audience on stage because like that, yeah, the tension of it all, the fear that they kind of live with too, but it felt really visceral being that close. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. But you know, like when I, when I talk about challenging space, it's partly cause like, I challenge a little bit the way that people watch things. I think walking into a theater for some people is like that in itself is the barrier because it's this like really stodgy place where you have to be silent. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. My mom will talk through the whole movie if we're watching a movie. And right, and it's, you know, like, I don't know. I The first time I did a show that had like a really, a lot of black audience was Trey Anthony's How Black Mothers Say I Love You. Oh, Trey. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> yeah. It was like being in church and I didn't even go to a black church, but like, you know, it was like the, the, res- the reactions were out loud and that was okay. Everybody accepted that, that that's how we were going to watch together. 
that we could watch. Like I had people around me trying to guess the next line. Like they were like, oh, they saw things on the fridge and were like talking about it out loud. And I was like, this is wonderful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is great. And the fact that we tell stories with like so much distance to me feels like it's more about money than it is about stories. Mm. So like, mm. you know, like would we, if we had the choice, would we tell a story with, you know, one single circle of people? and the actors are in it or part of it. You know what I mean? Like if we had that choice, would we do that sort of thing more often and make people feel more involved? And like, I try to remove that question of the money of it all when I try to think about what the story is. Right. So it's not about filling an 800 seat house, but it's about the quality of the experience. Right? Like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care how many people are, you know what I mean? The ticket sales and the whatever. The things I think about are like, oh, you know, is it more interesting if the audience can see each other and then feel culpable in this experience? Yeah, that's the kind of things that I want to to think about when I'm creating something. You know, that, and that's interesting because there's been a, I hate to say trend, but there's been a shift in a lot of new plays, new Black plays by younger Black playwrights in the States. And I think uh, Dominique, Dominique does this with her as, as well. Uh, at the beginning of the show, over the intercom, they will essentially tell you that, you know, this show, you know, we want you to talk back to the actors on stage. We want you mm-hmm. to respond to what's happening on stage. So they're essentially, like, even even in these predominantly white spaces, they are centering not only the Black audience, but also the way that Black people communicate and engage with art, uh, which is, to me an amazing shift <laughs> and it's always interesting to watch those shows because like the, the few shows that, that that I've seen where that is stated early on I'm watching the white people in the audience to see how they're responding to the fact that yeah you can laugh yeah you can talk back yeah you can like you know co-sign and respond so I can imagine like that new work also being really exciting for designers because it's like oh shit you know you mean I I get to 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 create, you know, this visual world of this landscape without the gaze being centered. Mm. Which makes me wonder like what what are some plays that you've read that you would love to design and haven't had a chance to yet? The other Terrell Alva McCraney's um I designed the costumes for the brother size. Oh. But I'd love to do the other plays, the other two plays in that. In the yes. trilogy. Yeah, Brother Size is my favorite in the trilogy. But but yeah, the other two, uh it would just be so interesting. That would be that would be fascinating yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Some beautiful work. Um, I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head. <laughs> so I got a question for you. So so when we when we look at the at the I hate the word canon, but the canon of black work available to us, one of the rather predominant features of it is that black work in North America, in some ways, is a response to the white gaze. It's a response to living in a world of whiteness, right? You look at August Wilson's work, and part of the reason that that we feel we feel such a kinship to it is that it it typifies attitudes that we all kind of have somewhere inside of us as we relate to the white world we have to survive within. So my question is, how do we reckon with that from a design perspective when so much of black fashion in a way is trying to historically fit into that white narrative but still disrupt it does that make sense what i'm asking mm. you know if we're if we're talking about how to move through the world but maintain a 
a sense of ourselves within that fashion. I mean, there are lots of there are lots of subversive things we've done with fashion over the years. To, I mean, to make all, all we do is subvert fashion. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's like that's right. That, that that is literally the black fashion aesthetic. Totally. But I, I guess how do we how do we encapsulate that and and bring it to light in design to actually teach people that that's what's going on. Right. I think I think one of the one of the features of it is that there is this sort of bilingual aspect to black folks watching plays because we see black hair and we understand what it means. We see black fashion, and understand what it means. White folks don't have that same language. Is there a way through design that we can highlight that, that we can communicate that? That's a big question. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that there's an answer to it. I think like. I don't know, like it's the the thing that's really tricky is that we're still like we're living in this world where there's there's so much around like what people understand and and like how I don't know if you can give someone a message that they don't get. Does that make sense? Right. Like, I don't know if there's a way to like educate in that sense visually. There might be though, and that's a really interesting thing to for me to think about maybe because it's like as a designer, I always recognize that people are coming in with their own knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and it's hard to, to like speak to some, to people on another uh, level than what they understand. Right. Um, like I, yeah, I always feel so aware of that, especially like when it comes to like sets too, I'm like, I wonder if people will know, will like recognize the things that I'm doing or, and if they don't, they just don't. Let's take how black mothers say, I love you. For example, mm-hmm. on the fridge, there were like all these magnets and there was all this stuff. Like there was this language that I was bringing from my own like West Indian experience, right. my own, you know, Trini experience that I was sort of bringing to that space. And I actually had audience members talk to me about that, but only yeah. black ones. <laughs> and I'm like, I was communicating something that I knew. And like, I remember my mom was like, Hey, wait a second. Are you like, are you saying something here? I was like, yeah, I am. And <laughs> I don't know that that anybody who didn't know could have known. <laughs> so. I think that's so important, though, because I'm, I'm thinking about that play, too, because Trey actually developed that play here in Atlanta at Horizon Theater. And so I remember, like, the early readings of it and even talking to her about it. And the fact that, and I'm thinking about her work in general, is so Black Canadian. <laughs> and, and and it really makes you wonder. It, it's like, you know, and, and this is something that I struggle with both as a, as a writer and a dramaturg, I feel like it is important for us to layer in those levels of meaning for the audiences that will get it. But I also think it's important to not feel obligated to explain to audiences that don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like, mm-hmm. let them do that work. <laughs> let them do that work of trying to unpack it. Because I think that's a part of the pleasure of that theatrical experience is making these audiences work harder than they have to work or are used to working. And, yeah, and I, I think, guess my question though, Adai, is are they going to do that work? I mean, that's the thing I always wonder. I mean, we can put something in front of them that they don't also, understand, but, yeah. but you know, you know, white folks are prone to making assumptions, but, but also I don't care if you do that work, work or not. But, but my, my thing is like, I'm going to put the work in there. If you right. choose to discover and explore, there's a lot for you to unpack. If you choose to be a lazy ass, then just be a lazy ass. I think we have reached the point where we no longer need to feel obligated to explain everything about blackness to white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like, them, yes. them days is over. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so, 
and, and, and some of the, and I'm thinking again about television being so much more advanced than, than what's happening in theater right now, is that what, what makes new Black TV so exciting is that there's not only storytelling and narrative that's happening, but it's also like education. And, and they're making people know that you've got to do homework when you watch this. You have to do homework when you watch Atlanta. There are things you can do with with a camera that you can't do on stage. Like you can you can have a prolonged close up of something that that lets an audience know there's something to interrogate in here, and you probably should. Yeah, but t- think about you know Terrell's work, especially the the mm-hmm. brothers plays the trilogy. It's like, do we really need an explanation of uh, the Orishas and Yoruba culture for them to understand that? No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you can get the story, but if you want to dig deeper. Then it's like, yeah, you know, who You'll is find Sean? a world of meaning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there for you if you decide to do that. I just don't think it's our obligation to hand that over and explain it to them. I hundred percent agree with you. It's like we just need to like unabashedly tell the stories we want to tell and make them look the way we want them to look, and not think about if someone's going to learn or not. Right, right. We've done enough teaching. And 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 uh, you know suckling and <laughs> pacifying for white audiences. It's it's true. I mean, I, I I do see another trend, I suppose, to use your word, uh, lately that is very didactic in terms of what's being put into a lot of new plays, and it's it's a little troubling to me because it feels well, it feels like we're we're putting too much priority on what you're talking about, on trying mm-hmm. to teach something, on trying to signal that this is something you should know about. This is important. Um, this is important. <laughs> Lean forward. I guess I'm wondering how how we can utilize design to to take the burden off of that impulse a little bit and say, you know what? Here's we're going to give you some visually or or orally that you can that you can go away with. That's that's going to linger in your brain and make you <laughs> fire up the Google machine later. I I don't know. Like I kind of think we already do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, th- I think like when I think of the like the, the sound designers that I know or I don't know, I think we're already putting in or I try to anyways, I'm always putting in everything, everything that I think is like going to help serve the story. And I don't want to necessarily distract myself with like added layers of education. Like I want to serve the story primarily or, or you know, or the, the art itself primarily and not think so so much about what people are going to take you know what i mean like just make the art and then people will take what they're going to take for sure man you got my brain racing now i'm i'm, I'm know, thinking I'm just... about all the, all the plays all the plays i want to do that i haven't done yet there's what's on your list, list what's on my list yeah. i would love i would love to do some of mccraney's work i mean i've seen it but i've never done it i'd love to do an octoroon oh Jack jenkins great yeah and any you know digging further back, I would love to do more Derek Walcott. I would love to do, I would love to do more West Indian work because those are stories that, by and large, people don't know on this continent. You know, I did a production of Dream on Monkey Mountain years ago, which it changed my life, frankly. That's a that's a beautiful um, show. It's a beautiful show, and it's just, it's it it deals with themes that we need to reckon with, frankly. You know, much like an Octoroon does. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is my. Yellow ass talking, right? I'm, I'm mixed race. It's it's clearer. It's clearer. My affinities, my affinities lie. But oh, light skinned ass. We- <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, ultimately, ultimately, these are things we need to talk about, right? Like, what is what is the what is the conflict within that? And not not some sort of Harriet Beecher Stowe tragic mulatto figure. I'm talking right. about 
I'm talking about what is really at the root of all this and how do we mm. reckon with this stuff? And that's what, that's what those plays are talking about. Right. And I think those are, those are really critical pieces to examine. I'd love to do the entire SCBI aerobic canon. <laughs> I don't uh, know if you know who that is, <laughs> Rachel. He's a, a professor of ours who wrote uh, a lot of a lot of really provocative work. Generally, yeah. I just I want to I want to do plays that I want to do plays that that challenge people and that go beyond the sort of direct implication of a lot of Wilson's work. You know, it, yeah. it, it feels like it feels like that work is very successful because it's so relatable because it's. In a way, it's sort of the the classic American play with black people in it. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I was I would also challenge that about Wilson too. I, I I think there's a tendency to think, especially I'm thinking about the the early Wilson plays, which were very much well made plays. But then mm-hmm. when 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 he stopped, you know, uh, collaborating with Lloyd, you think about those later plays like um, Seven Guitars or. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like any of the later plays after you stop stop working with Lord Richards, and you realize that you know that the political elements kind of disappear, and the mythic elements and the poetic elements kind of rise to the top, without a doubt. And I think people forget about that shift in his work. I think it's it's easy to think about Wilson as being like safely universal, but I think there's a lot more going on. Oh, I and, don't think it's safely universal, but I think I think one of the reasons that they're accessible is because it's a world that people recognize. Right. And I think, you know, when we did when we did Fences, it was really interesting because one of the moments that the audiences sort of recoiled from was the mythic moment when Gabriel goes into his his thing at the end. It was like, yeah, during the talkbacks, all these white folks would go, I really liked it. But what was up with that? um, That song thing? (laughs) It's like, maybe you should go interrogate that on your own. But it's those um, elements that, that are like I, I think universally diasporic. Like no matter where of course. you are. When you look at a play like Dream and Monkey Mountain, it doesn't it doesn't situate you in a recognizable world first. It just goes That's true. It's like, we're going in, bitch. Yeah, it's like this is all myth, all magic, bitch, deal with it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> gonna deal with this. You're gonna deal with this black poetic reality. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The dialect is crazy. We don't care. There's no subtitles. <laughs> but I feel like it's important for, for us. And, and, and you talked, you know, earlier about canon. But again, I feel like we just haven't even scratched the surface of the Black diaspora canon. And there's just yeah. so many more text and ideas and stories to play with. Yeah, for sure. Which so I anyway, that's that's fun. what I would love to do. Yeah. <laughs> Adai, what are some works you want to dramaturg? Oh, dude. Oh, man. I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ed Bullens. Huge fan of Ed Bullens, who was a, who was a mm-hmm. huge influence on August Wilson. Because this place was just grimy and real. And a lot of people feel that, it, that his work is dated. But I see Bullens as America's checkoff. I think there's so much going on mm-hmm. in terms of those stories that people know about. And I'm a big fan <laughs> of, like, you know, Intozaki Shange's lesser known plays. Like, I love Spell Number 7. I adore that. So I would mm-hmm. I, I would love to work on a production of that. And anything by Adrian Kennedy, I would die to work on. Like literally, you know, I would kill. <laughs> literally murder someone. I'm not lying. Uh, it's interesting, like right now for me as a designer, I'm two things I'm interested in is one like work that doesn't start from text. Mm. It's like a thing that I've been really I've been passionate about it for a long time and it's something that I I got to do a dance piece recently, um, a short um, with an Edmonton company that was like 
gave a prompt to a bunch of designers and then paired them with dancers and then like let the designer lead the process. And it was really, really interesting the, the pieces that came out. And then when it comes to textual work, I'm like really wanting to not have to dig into my identity right now. <laughs> <laughs> which is like and it might be because I've had so much opportunity to like work on plays that are you know either culturally specific or really deal with identity I'm like I just want to tell some wacky stories about who knows what that have nothing to do with me being black right. I that's like one of the things I'm really interested in right now are we allowed and to do that I'm not sure I'm still <laughs> and I think it's also a matter too of, 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 of us you know expanding this idea of, of what blackness is because it's not mm-hmm. you know i mean to me blackness ain't no struggle <laughs> so it's just like <laughs> so once we get out of our heads that blackness is about struggle all the time i think that actually gives us a lot of creative freedom and yeah. oh my god design driven work and like devised work that is driven by designers i think is the most important thing that needs to be happening right now <laughs> mm-hmm. yes 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 because i you know as a text-based person, I love text, but I'm kind of tired of it. I really want to see what, what stories happen when you have people focusing on the images and sound first. Mm-hmm. You know, where might that take us? So I'm excited, Rachel, to see what you do with that. <laughs> I'm excited to see I'm all for it. And I love the idea of, like, working with someone who's going to make text, but, like, working, giving them a place to start from is so interesting to me. It's like, oh, maybe start from this idea that's in my head and then see where that takes you. Because the process of design oh, is we may so have to work weird. on a project. Hold up, Rich. We need to get your contact information before we leave this thing. Before we leave this call. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that that's amazing. Yeah, because sometimes I dream something and I'm like, oh, there's a story there, but I don't necessarily want to write it on my own. I just like, I know. I'm like, but I know that there's a story there. And I'd love yeah. to like make it with someone. That happens to me often. And I feel like that would be cool to see. I'm sure there's so many designers I know who are such incredible creators and like oh i'd love to see designers and artistic leadership because yes please oh my god i think that goes back to the idea of of really this need to decolonize this process Mm -hmm. because because really it's like why aren't designers artistic directors you know why aren't the designers leading the rehearsal room and not the director you know, I think that's stuff we really need to start interrogating as theater artists, because I, I do yeah. think that once we start doing that, that's going to totally free up and expand the stories that we can tell and the palace that we can use to tell these stories. Yeah. Yeah. Because designers have such a unique perspective on, like, how we make theater, theater that's happening, like, the the community. Like, I feel like I work with more companies in a year than most other people that I know. You know what I mean? Like, this kind of connection to what's happening that's a little bit different than other and I think it's a wonderful, unique perspective that we should be taking advantage right. of. And, and, and there also seems, seems to be, I think, a, a racial or, or cultural block to that happening. Because Julie Taymor just popped in my head. And I'm yep. like, mm-hmm. you know, why, why isn't there a Black female Julie Taymor? Because she's a designer. Yeah. You know, but she's mm-hmm. also allowed to be a storyteller and a director. Yeah. So true. I, I don't know why. <laughs> the artistic director of Tantrum here is a lighting designer. Oh, cool. Trade, Michael Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's a white man, so he has authority in that realm, right? He has that cachet, if you will. I mean, this actually excites me and inspires me because I, I think the more disruptions, the more mm-hmm. disruptions we have, the more dynamic the art's going to be, and the freer we'll be as individual artists. 
Yeah. And I think this kind of brings us back around to the like education talk. Like it's like if we are teaching the people coming up now that like theater doesn't just have to go this one way, mm. then they might leave with that in their heads, you know. And that you don't have to specialize. I mean, it's like, do we realize how new like specialization <laughs> is a 20th century creation? <laughs> and how and how limiting it actually is. It's so limiting. Fuck specialization, y'all. Let's get rid of it. We're all theater artists. We're all artists. That's right. Before I went to theater school, I had like, I had designed, sure, sets. I had written a play, directed a play, like all of that kind of stuff like I had done in high school and then was like, okay, well now I'm going to this technical production program and Mm. found myself in all sorts of new boxes that I didn't realize needed to be there. Yeah. (laughs) Get rid of it. Yeah, get rid of it. Well, thank thank you for this, Rachel. I appreciate this. I'm excited and inspired now. It's like let 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 let's dissolve all those boxes. And the next time you have a dream, will you please just send me like some images or just an email? Yeah, if you if you send it to him, he's gonna text it to me. I'll write that shit. We can make this happen. We're making this collaboration happen right now. Shit. That's right. <laughs> I'm gonna have to start sharing my morning paintings. Yeah, do that. Please let's let's make this let let's make this a practice. Honestly, yeah. let's figure out how to do this. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting work. Thank you for sharing your your, your vision with us. We appreciate that. Yeah, Indeed. thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Well, Adai, I know you got to get to rehearsal, man. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you broken legs and oh, and all you. the wonderful things that the art creates in you. And uh, I'll see you next time. Yeah, I'll take care. Old Heads was written and created by E.B. Smith and Adaye Moon in association with Ghostlight Creative, produced by Nicole Unju-Bell, edited by Vern Good. If you're enjoying Old Heads and want to hear more and support what we're doing here, head over to Patreon and support our page at patreon.com oldheads. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.